Okay, so it's now my great pleasure to introduce our guest speaker today, uh, along with his wife Bev, who's sitting over there. Um, they are senior pastors of uh, Vineyard Sutton. They're area leaders for Vineyard Churches in the London region. They're actually the reason that we became, Lynn and I became part of the Vineyard uh, originally, uh, and they're still our personal overseers within the movement. He has a Doctor of Ministry degree and a PhD, so he obviously has a brain the size of a planet, but more importantly, he has a heart the size of a planet as well. So please would you give a very warm Aylesbury Vineyard kind of welcome to Jason Clark. One, oh, there we go. Morning, everyone. It's lovely to be here with you. And uh, I think this is the third time I've been up here and uh, sharing with you um, over the years. And it's always a privilege to come back here. I was on the drive up here, I was thinking about our, our history with knowing about the Aylesbury Vineyard. And we knew Mick and Lynn 30 years ago. Um, and my wife and I, about 28 years ago, were in the Oxford Vineyard. And Mick and Lynn would come across and visit small groups there and were here in Aylesbury doing things. Um, and remember how exciting it sounded what God was doing here and the, the way that uh, through the birth of this church he moved and especially ministry to the poor um, and to come up and see the community fridge and just how that ministry continues here and what this church does in the community is amazing and, and then lovely to see Stephen Lynn as friends uh, take this church on and have it continue into more of what God is uh, doing for it. Love your cafe area outside by the way, it's very beautiful. And uh, so in getting ready for today, was praying and listening to the Lord and saying, Lord, what is this a word that you've got? And I've uh, got something to share, um, and uh, we'll, I hope it will encourage you and strengthen you. Um, but again, we've got a little video to watch. The Bible says, my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He 
forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Terror couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! Now, if you go to YouTube, you can find that. That was uh, Dr. S.M. Lockridge. His full name was Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. <laughs> I think his parents were determined uh, for him to know his uh, Christian heritage. Um, died in 2000, very well-known African-American preacher in, uh, in America. If you go to YouTube and just Google, do you know him? It's interesting, you had the same response as people in the first service. Once we start to hear someone declare who God is, who Jesus is, something responds in us, and we, it's called worship. That's what you did just then. We worshipped, clapped our hands. And that's the question for the talk I've got today. If you want one, it is, do you know him? Do you know him? Uh, and under that, another question. Do you know him, and does your life match an encounter with that God? The one that we just got inspired by and clapped? I'm asking you a question about a gap. Is there, is there a gap in your life between knowing that God and what's going on in your life at the minute? I'm sure many of you came here with many things this morning, and there might be a gap. Now, um, Paul, writing to all the churches in the New Testament a lot of the time, and many of the churches in the New Testament suffered some awful things. Can we put up the Bible verse? main Bible verse I've got for you today is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. And just before I read it to you. So, um, you know, churches are suffering greatly and persecution and starving and all sorts of things happening. And Paul writes to these churches and he acknowledges their suffering. But he very quickly doesn't dwell there in a way that you and I might do. Um, in fact, he's, it can seem almost a little bit dismissive because, you know, these, these are just light and momentary troubles. You notice that? Can you imagine if Stephen Lynn as pastors, if you went to them and said, like, I just lost my job, you know, my dog's died, the car blew up, um, you know, my, uh, one of my kids has got cancer, and you know, Steve said, I know, that's sad, but it's just a momentary affliction. You'd probably put a complaint on Facebook, wouldn't you, <laughs> about your uncaring pastor. Now, Paul's not being uncaring. 
Paul knew something. He knew that, yes, we go through difficult things, but the answer is not to stay with the difficult things and wish that our situation was changed and what was happening wouldn't happen to us. In fact, Jesus promised us that we would go through great difficulties and challenges. And Paul reaches for something. Um, and he reaches for immediately in every church he writes to to talk about Jesus and his responses. I know you're suffering. More of Jesus. I know it's difficult. More of Jesus. And, if, and you know those great prayers that Paul prays. He starts to say, I know, I know, I know, but what we need is more of Jesus. And then before you know it, Paul is just worshipping. You imagine him writing away. And he just gets caught up. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And not that, you know, trite Christian Jesus thing that we often do with each other, where Jesus is the answer, which means nothing. <laughs> but Jesus is the answer. And that's what Dr. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, no, um, said. And Paul's writing this to the Ephesians, for this reason... Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Do you want more of that in your life? Is this what Paul's saying? This is, this is Jesus. More. Jesus is the answer. More of that God. Jesus is not someone to get us something else. Jesus is the something else. He's it. Period. Now, when it comes to relationships... You and I know this, but we have a tendency. We're going to look at this a little bit uh, this morning. We tend to default to using Jesus to get us the things that we want. And that's why we have this big gap in our life between who he is and who we are. Now, we know this instinctively about relationships, that relationships, it's hard to go through life without relationships. I mean, some people do go through life, and the only relationship they choose is with themselves. We call it narcissism. We can become so buffered and buttoned down and obsessed with ourselves. And some of us have friends and family members like that. They are the center of the universe and everybody orbits them. And no one can break it. It's all about them. But we know relationships are supposed to work differently. Relationships are the most important thing. And I was thinking about this preparing for today. And I will never forget when my daughter turned up, my eldest daughter. Anyone here got kids? take delight after the screams and the trauma and that was just me um, and then the baby arrives and I remember picking up my daughter at the hospital praying for her and, and praying and she's 25 now and praying Lord I've just received her but my job is to help her grow up and know you and to leave and move on into life with you and this beautiful little thing and now she's tall and beautiful and annoying and expensive but <laughs> she's lovely so and I remember entering into the world of mother care and needed a pushchair. I hadn't thought this through. We were young. We got married at 21 and um, I didn't come from a great family for looking after us or, or sorting out anything. And, and I remember going down and you go into mother care and the first time as a you know, very young, in my early 20s, dad and looking at pushchairs and like, oh my goodness. I mean, now they're all different. They're carbon fibre and Bluetooth and all these kinds of things. And, <laughs> 
iPad screens and you name it. But in our day, none of that stuff. Um, so uh, anyway, picnics and thinking, I don't know how to pay for this. I haven't got the money to pay for this. We was, <laughs> our family couldn't help us and we didn't have resources to do things. But something welled up inside me for my daughter. It was like, I'm going to pay for this. And I'm going to find a way to pay for it. It doesn't matter how many jobs, what, I've got, whatever it takes, I will do because of her. Because I had met her, something came out of me. Does that make sense? Now, it's a bit different when they grow up and other stuff comes out of you in the middle of the night and you can't get some sleep, but that's a different story. Um, but then, like my wife, first time I met my wife, before she was my wife. You know, I met her and I was a poor student and working 12 different jobs to try and get through. We were both at London School of Theology and I didn't have a grant and Bev didn't. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't have two pennies to rub together. But because of having met who my wife was and my relationship with her, suddenly my, the money that was in my bank account didn't stay there very long. Guess where it went? It followed the love. It followed the relationship. See, we know that about our relationships, that when we encounter someone, it pulls something out of us and something just flows naturally from us. And some of us have had experiences of God and he's touched us and, and we move towards him. But then life happens and the gap opens up and it becomes someone we go to to get something else. And I'm prone to this even as a pastor. You know, I mean, I sometimes think that my prayers, you know, maybe they're more Christian because I'm a pastor, but I realise sometimes I come to God with the list of all the things happening in the church. And it is no different than coming to God with a perpetual shopping list. And he's like, sometimes I hear like a sigh. <sighs> Could we just chat? <laughs> Could we just be in relationship? The gap opens up so quickly with the pressures and the things of life happen and we move from a relationship to something that isn't now in 1 John 5 verse 12 um, John writes this whoever has the son has life whoever does not have the son does not have life makes it really simple if you've got Jesus you've got life if you don't have Jesus you don't have life so just to pause there and again come back and say, so this God and this who Jesus is and how we got motivated hearing someone remind us, again, to hit the pause button and say, so can you just for a minute, can you feel or sense where that gap is between meeting that God and what's going on in your life at the minute? We've got a gap, haven't we? So let's look at how that gap, a bit more about how it opens up and how to bridge it. I want to share with you just really simply this morning three things that from... from that come drawn from scripture that explain how that gap opens up and also point towards how that gap can be closed yeah so to bring understanding but also so we can make a movement and a response if we want to close that gap the first one is this that if we meet god we we to be to meet god is to be sent um Scripture again and again, we wish we had time for this this morning, shows us that when someone encounters God, they are immediately called by God to enter into what he is doing in the world. Not to go home and go, that was nice. I met God today. That was nice. If you've met God, something happens. Remember? Push chairs, roses, flowers, 
Meals out. You know, displays of affection, public displays of affection emerge. Inappropriate ones for Christians. We should be. Meet God. Out we go. To meet God is to be sent. In fact, the word um, that we use, where we get the word mission from in Latin means missio, to be sent. But often, again, the only time we go to God is often just to get something. It would be a bit like having a son or daughter that only goes to their parent when they just need something. I've got some friends like this with their, you know, their kids, and it's a bit sad. And they go, do you know what? The only time we ever hear from my son is when he wants something. Brings me for money. There's no relationship there. It's heartbreaking, isn't it, when that happens? Some of us have got friends who aren't really friends at all. And you know that unless you contacted them, you'd never hear from them. And in fact, when they do contact you, it's because they want something. They're in trouble. They want help. They want support. And you know real friendship's not like that. Real friendship is because of who you are. I'm here. What are we going to do? Relationship. And just a quick whirlwind tour, when God meets Abraham, what happens the moment that God meets Abraham? God meets Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you beyond all understanding, but in order to get this blessing, what does Abraham get told to do? Go. Give it up. He doesn't say, Abraham, I've got a great pension plan for you, an investment opportunity back where you are. I can take what you've got, and I can multiply it, and then we're going to use that. Because over 2,000 years, the investment on your capital with me is going to be so great. We're going, to, we're going to, you know, he doesn't do that, does he? God's economy is totally different. He says, Abraham, leave it all. Abraham was very wealthy. Leave it. Go. You've met me. Go. God, Moses. Eventually, Moses meets God. The burning bush. Remember the burning bush story? And he meets the burning bush and he takes off his shoes. He's on holy ground and he meets God. And then God says to him, fantastic. What does he say next? Go back. Go back to everything you're scared of and fearful of and you think you can't overwhelm in your life. But because of me, I am doing something there. Go there. And he goes. After a bit of complaining. Which we're good at. Isn't it great that's in the Bible? You go like, me? No. We're all good at that one. Peter goes out fishing, doesn't catch anything, meets Jesus for the first time. Jesus, you know, and in the story we can sort of read the exasperation. It's just like, oh, yes, Rabbi. Jesus goes, put out, and he goes, all right. Goes back out, drops his nets, and catches the biggest catch of his life when it shouldn't have happened. Now, in the story, you'll notice, if you remember the story with Peter, there's something Peter doesn't do. Peter doesn't go, wow, I'm rich. Thanks, Jesus. Same time next week. In fact, no, this will last about two or three weeks. Could you come back in three weeks' time? You know, or, or actually, have you got, can I phone you? Have you noticed that? What is... Peter's response to Jesus when he catches the most fish he's ever caught in his life. There is something in this story to notice. He does not really think, wow, now I've got Jesus in my life, I can get as much fish as I want. He realises, oh, you. And then what does Jesus say to Peter? In that moment, when, Jesus, when Peter meets Jesus 
and he realizes a bit about who Jesus is. What does Jesus say to Peter? Follow me. Peter goes. God has so much for us, but in order to access it, we have to leave and give up what we have, even when we feel like we don't have anything. And in fact, the, the less that we feel we have is the reason to go and to give and to leave and to move. God has so much for us. Jesus models this for us. You remember Philippians chapter 2? It's one of those beautiful verses. It's, it was a hymn. Uh, they think it was a hymn that the early church used and made its way into Philippians chapter 2. That Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, poured himself out. The Greek word is kenosis. He emptied himself and humbled himself. And he just he was, gave himself until he died on a cross. And then God, what did God do to him? raised him from the dead. And the Greek word there that we get in Philippians 2 is pleurosis. God himself filled up Jesus limitlessly. Filled him up. It's the Jesus way. You see, that was Jesus' relationship with the Father. Jesus shows us what it was like to know the Father. Jesus knew the Father, loved the Father. His relationship with the Father was everything. And Jesus says, the Father has sent me. In fact, John chapter 17, verse 18. And Jesus is praying. Father, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus says, Father, I met you and I went. And they've met me and now I'm calling them to come with me. So Jesus shows us this depth of what the responsive relationship and knowing God is. And by the way, again, we can think that being sent, you know, like Abraham and Moses and Peter, well, I'm not an apostle and I'm not going to Pharaoh and it's all those, and people that are sent, well, that's about missionaries and it's about pastors, isn't it? And people that do big things for God. What I'm talking about here today is the gap that you have in your everyday life. It's being sent to work. It's where we're called to be sent to our families. And for some of us, it's where we're called to be sent to go with God into who we are. That's the greatest mission field of our lives. Um, when I was at uh, Sixth Horn College, I became a Christian when I was uh, 17. And the Sixth Horn College, they picked up that things weren't good at home. My father had left. I had a one-year-old brother and another brother who was up to all sorts of trouble. Um, and I guess they had some pastoral concerns, which was nice. And I got called to see the careers advisor. And I remember I could look back now on the questions he was asking. Uh, and basically the subtext was this. You know, we know your life's difficult enough. What's this weird church Christian thing you've got involved in? I remember his suspicion, and quite right, could have been a cult, couldn't it? Like the vineyard, but anyway, that's the little story. Um, you know, and meant well, and he said to me, so what do you want to do with your life, and what's happening? And he sort of was trying to guide me towards maybe what you need to do with where you're at with life is get a good job and some pay, and, you know, I mean, really, you know, wise, practical advice. But as a 17-year-old who'd just become a Christian, I tried to tell him, I said, well, I've met God. And he's spoken to me. Remember the look on his face? And he said, what's he told you? He said, I'm going to be a pastor one day. 
And I remember he, he reached over and he went through his drawers and he pulled out a manila file and he went, blew the dust off it. And he said, this is the only thing I've got. It, it's about being a Jesuit priest. <laughs> I went, no, no that's, that's not it. I know that's not what I want to be. Um, and then he rang my mother and had a conversation because he wanted to make sure that this church wasn't making my life worse. And I remember the next day I was walking along with my best friend, um, uh, in fact, he became a Christian through me, and he's uh, now the pastor of the Southampton Vineyard, Matt Hyam. And we're walking along at 17 years old, and I was chuckling away to myself, a little conversation in my head like I do. And he said, what are you laughing at? I said, I saw the crucifixer yesterday. And he said, oh, yeah, I've been to see him too. And he said, um, you know, he was really concerned about you know, me being a... My friend Matt wasn't a Christian at this point. He said, he's really concerned about me being a Christian and stuff. And, I'm, and you, know, you can go and see Matt, see if he remembers this conversation. And he said, and he said, why are you laughing? I said, because basically I told him I'd met God. And he said, what did the careers advisor say? He said, he said this to me, literally this. That's great, but don't let it affect your life too much. <laughs> I've met the creator of the universe, but don't let it affect your life too much. Just stupid that sounds. But you know what? That's the world we live in. We live in a secular world that would tell you know, keep God private, keep him at home, you know, public displays of affection for God. You could do whatever you want in your own bedroom with God. You can pray to him there. And what happens is that seeks, and this, this comes from the enemy. We're going to finish looking at what the enemy does with this. And he takes that lie and he weaves it into us. And it's like, yeah, you've met God. But don't let it affect you too much. You know... Just a bit of a busy time at work at the minute. Focus on your job. Focus on your hobbies. Focus on your family. God loves you. It's all right. And he tells us the lie. And it is a lie. Do you know the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross? It's a beautiful song. I love it. For the last verse, all the verses that say, you know, like that, video we saw it's like here is who God is and at the end of the hymn after it's declared who God is and who Jesus is the hymn says love so amazing so divine what's the next word demands my soul my life my all to meet God and to know his love places a demand on us I met the love of my life that demanded a lot of money and attention Otherwise, she wouldn't still be the love of my life. <laughs> my children, my love for my children demands something. And we live in a world that says that, that nothing should be demanded of us apart from what we pay for. And the lie the enemy speaks to us is about, we've met God, but don't let it affect your life too much. No public displays of affection. So... Uh, where are we? I mentioned John 17, verse 18. Jesus says, I've been sent by Father by you, and I'm sending them. But five verses earlier, when Jesus is explaining this prayer, this prayers that he prays, isn't it amazing? The disciples got to listen in on Jesus praying to the Father, his relationship with him. And it's recorded for us. Well, Jesus, five verses earlier, says, every, says literally this, Father, I'm saying all these things that they, you and I, the disciples, might have, listen to this, my fullness of joy. Wow. 
Jesus didn't say, I'm saying all this so that they might have some joy. He didn't say, I'm saying all of this and I'm, and I'm telling them, be like me, let's be sent together. I'm not, I'm, I'm not just telling them this so that they might have some joy. I'm telling them so that they might have the fullness of the joy that I have with you. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is like, I have such fullness in my relationship with the Father and if you come with me, it's yours too. Isn't that awesome? So let me say it this way. Do you remember at the beginning I said, is there a gap between your experience of God and what's going on at life in the minute? And some of you are nodding. If you could plug in the fullness of the joy that Jesus had of the Father into your life right now, do you think that would bridge every gap in your life? Some of you are like, yeah. I think it would, completely. So, but we live in a world that says, you know, Oh, you know, put your busyness first, your tiredness. Our yes doesn't mean yes anymore. We're all terrified of missing out. And yes means maybe and what's in it. We're trained now in a consumer society. What's in it for me? And I'm bored and I'm not interested. And none of us would say that. None of us would say to God, oh God, I'm just too bored at the minute. We use a different word with a B. I've just mentioned it. What's the one we use the most? Busy. If we need to repent of something... That word, every time we say that word, we should repent. Because it's, it's, it's the thing that is destroying the fullness of the joy that Jesus had in our lives. It's amazing how we're busy. We, we make schedules that we make, and then the crap priorities that we put in them that cut through our relationship with God, we expect other people to understand. I can't do that the minute I'm so busy. And do you know what God does not understand? Do you know why he doesn't understand? Because he loves us. Do you know what, remember what love demands? God loves us so much, he is so desperate for the fullness of the joy of Jesus to be in us. He is so desperate for us to become who he meant us to be that he doesn't sit there and go, oh, that's all right. I know you're busy, don't worry about it. Come back when you can. He's like, I love you. I love you. There's more than this. So, um, do you remember Jeremiah 29? There's a promise in Jeremiah 29. Do you remember the promise? God has a plan to bless us and prosper us. Brilliant, isn't it? The first time anyone prayed a Bible verse over me, when I was a new Christian and hadn't ever read the Bible, um, I was in small, the first small group I went to and someone laid hands on me and prayed that prayer over me. It was life-changing. With everything going on in my life, to hear that truth spoken over me. And here I am today, 30 years, more than 30 years later. Amazing. But one of the things we need to learn about the promises of God, there's always the need to read the bit that comes before the promise. Have you figured that one out yet? There's a reason for the promise. At the beginning of Jeremiah, uh, uh, the people of God are in captivity. Jeremiah 28, the false prophet Hananiah, he's basically saying, look, life is difficult. Um, These people do not want your interest. They're persecuting you. So what you should do is take care of yourselves, and if you can, get away from here. And then Jeremiah, at the beginning of chapter 29, says that's a false prophecy. That's how other people live in the world. And in fact, he says, I want, God says, seek the welfare of the city. Do you remember that phrase in Jeremiah? In other words, seek the welfare 
of where you live and the people that don't know God and the people that live the opposite of how you're supposed to live and the people that do not want the fullness of Jesus in their lives seek their welfare and do that by taking your jobs, homes and relationships and giving them away for those people. Isn't that scandalous? Give it away. Be sent where you are. And it's almost like in the passage there's a sharp intake of breath and silence. God's people would be like, seriously? If I'd have been there, I'd have been like, seriously? I might have to pray about that. That's what good Christians do, don't they? That's why the next bit in the passage is that God says, yes. And when you pray, when you seek me, you will find me. And even better than that, if you live like this, if you live like me, if you, are, if you respond out of your love for me, no matter what's going on, and you go out and you give like me, then I have a plan to bless you and prosper you. Fantastic. Um, I mentioned how we have a very real enemy, Satan himself, the, the enemy in scripture. Two words just to mention in passing. One is satanus. The, uh, the etymology of that in Greek means the accuser, the liar, the deceiver. And he comes along and he lies to us about who God is. The, another word that's used is where we get the word devil from, diabolos. And, it, and one of the meanings of diabolos, it means um, the severer of relationships. So what the enemy wants to do is he wants to tell us lies so that we are cut off from a relationship with God. And that's what's at stake here. Um, use a metaphor here for my last thing. Um, you know on an airplane, they tell you when the, the masks come down, they say, put them on your face. You remember that? You've you got to do that before you help anybody else. Makes sense on an airplane when it's crashing, because it gives you something to do while the airplane crashes. Um, <laughs> that's the real reason. It's not going to be much help. Um, anyway, but if it was a help, that's the way to do it. Now, that metaphor, sorry, that process for an airplane is often used as a metaphor for life. And sometimes it is helpful, you know, when someone is really ill or abused, you know, it's like you've got to start to take care. Some of us are not very good at taking care of ourselves. But it is often misused, especially by Christians. And the enemy turns that into a lie. And he comes along and he says, you really need to take care of yourself. When you've got more in your life, keep putting that mask on when you've got more money, more time, more energy, when you've got more, then you can be sent. That makes sense? Some of you heard that metaphor, haven't you? Take care of yourself. My nan, my, who died a few years ago, was a lovely grandmother, and she used to say this to me. It wasn't very Christian, but she meant well. Jason, take care of yourself, because nobody else will. That's what she learned in life. And God says the opposite. Take care of others, and I will take care of you. That's what the enemy hates. So, um, and by the way, on the oxygen and the mask, when Jesus turns up in the Gospels and he speaks, right at the beginning of the Gospels in Mark chapter 1, he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the Gospel. Um, the kingdom of God, God's presence, the reality of, of breaching the gap between where you are and knowing God is now open, it's here. And the word that Jesus uses at hand is the word atmos, where we get the word atmosphere from. Jesus is like, it's so close. Stop holding your breath and breathe it in. Some of us go through life holding our breath as if we're underwater, hoping to survive it. 
and we're terrified to turn to God and enter his kingdom and breathe it in. Breathe in the air of the kingdom. Lastly, be impressed by Jesus. Uh, the greatest challenge to today, if any of this has been any help to you, is we get in our cars or walk and leave and go home and we, we've worshipped and we're inspired about who God is. But within a couple of days' time, we're back to exactly where we were and that gap's back. And it's like, has it ever happened to you? Met God on Sunday, go home, and it's like, where did that go? How did that gap come back? Well, I've got some homework for you this week. Spot those moments this week. And they'll, they'll manifest like this. If, if any of this is God's word and the Spirit does something with you this week, I pray that during the week, by the Holy Spirit, that you would be given eyes to see and ears to hear the things that you think and the things that you say that the enemy has sown into your life. And they will be things like this. Oh, I can't do that at the minute. I'm too tired. I'm too busy. That's the most demonic word. 1 John 4, verse 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in your busyness and your tiredness and your boss and your worries. The Lord wants to release us to live in the reality of meeting him. The rea like, as real as the reality of living out of having met my daughter, the reality of having met the love of my life is my wife... He wants me to live out the reality of meeting the creator of the universe and to release me. Now, the Holy Spirit lives inside every believer. Do you know that? The Holy Spirit lives inside every believer. And God himself does that. Is there any demonic force or power that can separate us from God's love and his spirit in us? Say that again. Say it like you mean it. No. Can the spirit of busyness separate us from the love of God? No. So why does it? We know nothing. Scripture tells us nothing can separate us. So just to land on this and finish with this, if nothing can separate us, if having met God should enable us to be free to respond to him, why does that gap happen? It's not. The enemy, yes, he tells us lies. And he does things, but it's not because of the enemy. It's because we believe the lies he tells us. The only person that can separate us from the love of God is us. Is us. Scripture, by the way, again, we haven't got time. We can choose to never respond to God and spend an eternity separated from him. We can choose when we've met him to go through life and live with a gap between who he is and what he has for us. So very last thing. And what happens is we become, careful with my words here, we become impressed by the enemy. You know, to be impressed by something is like, oh, that was impressive. But you know what an, impre an impression is? You know when you pick up a chair and it's left an impression on the floor. You see, the enemy comes in, he's, he's, he, Scripture tells us he is going around like a prowling lion looking to devour us. And he is whispering lies all the time and he's trying to separate you from God's love in your life. And his impression, he... He can't live in us, but he can put his impression on us. And we get impressed by the enemy. So, by the Spirit, let's pause right now. Who came in here this morning under the weight and the impression of busyness? Who came in here this morning under the impression of anxiety and worry and fear and disappointment? 
That's what separates us. And the obstacles and the fears of the time that we live in and tiredness and busyness and lack. And then we do what Adam and Eve did. And we withdraw. And we go home. And we put on another box set. Take another holiday. Go on another fun run. Drink another glass of wine. We do these things. And as I'm speaking, some of you can feel the weight and the impression of that in your life. And that's the thing that separates you. That's the place where the gap is. But here's a scripture for you. Two scriptures to close. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 49. Paul declares, we bear the image, the impression of the heavenly man. It's a technical phrase he uses. But in other words, we, as followers of Christ, instead of the impression of the enemy can have the impression of the image of Jesus Christ pressed into us. Would you like that? Wouldn't that be great to wake up tomorrow instead of dread and depression and anxiety and disappointments? Instead, to start to feel the weight of the glory of God and his love and his presence? Jesus says this, Matthew 19, verse 29. Remember, if you're saying, I want that impression, I want God's spirit, it's this. Jesus tells us this. Anyone who has left homes or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wives or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Let me paraphrase that to finish. Jesus says this. Anyone who stands up under their busyness and says, I say no to it. Because Jesus, you sent me. Anyone who refuses their busyness and steps into what I have for them, I will bless them a hundredfold. Anyone who is anxious and fearful, who stands up under the weight of their anxiousness and fear, and as they say yes to me, I will replace that anxiety and fear with my presence. Anyone like that? Well, let's stand up and we're going to pray. And the Lord's got some blessing for us.